In a global industry where anything can happen, where mistakes cost much more than dollars, we bring you expertise from around the world to ensure that everyone goes home safe every day. The internationally acclaimed Oil & Gas HSE podcast starts now with your host, Russell Stewart. Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the OGGN HSE podcast. We hope you enjoy and benefit from this and all our shows. And if so, then please support our sponsor, Anderson Hauser, a global leader in process automation and measurement instrumentation. Anderson Hauser, the people for process automation. Tell them thank you for sponsoring the show by going to our website, which is in the show notes. And there you can also register for our monthly giveaway. And today I'm going to jump right into the show because it's my pleasure to have Miss Rachel McCormick. Rachel, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me, Russell. Okay, so Rachel, you are the General Consul of Canada. Is that right? The Consul General of Canada here in Dallas, Texas. Okay, so I'm not talking to Calgary. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Where is the consulate actually in Canada? Is it in Calgary or is it in Quebec? Yeah, so we have a network of Canadian consulates across the United States. And so it's rare for us to have consulates in many countries. But for those countries that we have a really big relationship, we have these consulates established. And so we have the embassy in the capital, and then we have consulates around, we have 12 consulates around the United States. And then the Americans have consulates across Canada. And so there's a consulate for the United States in Calgary. There's one in, in Vancouver. There's one in Toronto. There's one in Winnipeg. So, you know, these consulates are really here to support the bilateral relationship and also develop the relationships at the subnational level. So I'm the prime minister's representative for five states, Texas, Louisiana, Arkansas, Oklahoma, and New Mexico. And I liaise with the state legislatures, the governors, as well as the senators and House of Representatives that go to D.C. and the mayors and, of course, industry. Okay, so one of the things people often talk about this show, and I'm happy we're sort of going international again today. We have this lovely British voiceover that introduces the show, <laughs> and then I come on as the host with this heavy Texas accent. You're in Dallas, but I don't detect the heavy Texas accent. Where are you from? I grew up in Western Canada, so I have to say I feel very much at home here in Texas. I grew up in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, which I always say is is not only fun to say, but it's a great place to grow up. But it's in the prairies, big open skies. I'm quite used to driving down a highway that doesn't have a lot of turns and seeing pump jacks and cattle and farms. So Texas feels very much at home to me. Except for the winters. Except for the winters. That's right. When you talk about the polar vortex in the United States, we just say, well, that's winter. <laughs> well, people who are regular listeners to this show, I've interviewed people from Canada before. And when I was a teenager, I actually lived in Lloydminster. Ah, that's where my grandma lives. There you wow. go. The first winter we were there was like the worst winter they'd had in 50 years. And one week, the high for the week was 25 below. Yes, it's a cold place up there, northern northern Alberta, but central to the conventional energy sector in Canada, that's for sure. Okay, so speaking of that, ironically, the year that I left, and I left in springtime, I believe it was, and that next winter, the winter of that year, they did not even have snow at Christmas time. That would be rare, but I'm sure the people that were there that year welcomed it as a new opportunity to explore winter. <laughs> Well, it had to have been climate change. 
<laughs> well, we've had lots of extreme weather in Canada over the last few years. Big deep freezes, floods, fires, just like the United States. Yeah. Well, so that was my feeble attempt at trying to segue into maybe one of the main topics of our discussion, and that is Canada and climate change. Let's talk about that. Sure. Well, you know, when you think about Canada and the U.S. and how we're connected, you know, we're connected through so many things. And obviously, weather patterns come across our borders. Our border is actually, in addition to being the longest undefended border in the world, it's also over 40% water. And we have air and, you know, birds everything that goes across that border. We are called, you know, the duck factory of the North. So for your Texas listeners that are duck hunters, most of those ducks start off in Canada. It's just an example of how we're connected, of course. And our energy sectors are, are very, very connected, whether it's through, you know, over 70 pipelines or over 30 transmission lines, the energy sectors are connected in that critical infrastructure. Now, in terms of what we're doing on climate change in Canada, we are very active in the area of climate change. We have a federal commitment to be net zero by 2050. And by 2030, our goal is to have reduced our emissions by 40 to 45%. And we're doing that through a number of ways. The framework is called the Framework for Clean Growth and Climate Change. And I think that's really important to talk about the clean growth aspect, because I think, as we are seeing, there's an opportunity. There's an opportunity to innovate and to have economic growth and technology opportunities across international trade and within our own domestic constituencies. So there's a big emphasis on that. We do have a price on carbon in Canada. That started, though, I have to say, because we have shared jurisdiction with our provinces. The provinces in Canada are like your states in the United States. And just like here, we have a shared responsibility. The way that those responsibilities are shared is a bit different, but it is shared in terms of environment and energy and climate change issues. And so it might surprise your listeners, actually, that our price on carbon, our price on pollution actually came in. In 2007, the first jurisdiction to have it was Alberta. And of course, that's where the majority of our oil and gas production comes. Alberta is the Texas Canada. Absolutely. Alberta is Texas, Canada. That's exactly right. And then we had British Columbia come in with a, a carbon price. And then Quebec and California created a cap and trade system that continues to be connected. And then in 2019, a federal price came in. And so it's made up of two parts. And the main part is an output-based pricing system, which puts a price on carbon for all major emitters. And it started at $20 a ton in 2019, and then it has gone up by $10 a year, and it'll go to $50 in 2022. And, you know, depending on the location, so if provinces have their own system that meets the federal expectations, they just keep going with their provincial system, and they use that money how they see fit. And if the federal government uses their system, then the money gets reinvested in that province as well. But, you know, Alberta is a great example because, like I said, they started in 2007 and their system covers 60% of the emissions from the province and it's mostly major emitters there. And since 2007, they have generated almost a billion dollars that have gone to over 200 projects. And that money is leveraged in terms of incenting innovation and putting money into research and development and deployment to find ways to even innovate further and reduce emissions further. And those projects are estimated to have reduced CO2 in Alberta 
by 42 million tons by 2030. So it's a pretty significant, and over 12 million of those tons are really focused on cleaner oil and gas, but they also look at electricity, industrial processes, and the agriculture sector as well. Let me interrupt you there for just a minute. I want to talk a little bit more about this carbon pricing. Mm-hmm. Okay, So you mentioned a price of I forget what you said now, so many million per ton or whatever, and then it increased and that sort of thing. So how is this paid? So for the major emitters, the industry pays it themselves. So a company would pay it based on the facility or a combination of facilities if they have a number of locations. And so they would have a limit that they're supposed to hit in terms of the emissions for their facility that's based on best practices, and that limit can reduce over time. So they can choose to pay if their emissions go over that. So right now, this year, that the price is starting at $40 per carbon dioxide equivalent. And that money would go into a fund that would get reinvested into the province. If they're below that emissions level, then they can actually sell that credit and make money off of it. And there's a market then for it. So what it does do is it incents innovation, right? And so you can, you can pay or you can innovate and reduce your emissions and actually make money off of that as well. And we're really seeing, you know, in our oil sands, for example, we've seen greenhouse gases per barrel go down 20% since 2011. And so you see how this incentives for innovation are really having on the ground results in terms of what's coming out of the energy sector in Alberta. And now some of the new oil sense projects are actually below the North American average for heavy crude per barrel. And so, you know, by putting a price on it and not saying you have to do it X way using this technology, it allows the company to decide how they're going to reduce their emissions or if they would rather pay the per ton emissions cost that is assigned to their facility. Okay, well, that helps clear it up a little bit. So you mentioned oil sands. That's what Canada's famous for, right? It is a huge, huge deposit. And in fact, it is the major source of our proven reserves. We have the third largest proven reserves in the world. And over 95% of that is contained in the oil sands, which are largely in Alberta, but extend a little bit into Saskatchewan as well. So this net zero commitment you talked about for 2050, that is primarily focused in the oil sands? Well, we have a federal commitment to net zero by 2050 for all of Canada. So the federal government has committed to that. And we work with the provinces across all industries and all sources of emissions. But you're right that actually in the oil sands, the producers in that basin have committed to net zero as well by 2050. So they, over 90% of the owned and produced resources there with the major producers is actually under a commitment to get towards net zero by 2050. And they're doing that through lots of ways. They're doing that through plans for carbon capture. We already have a carbon capture facility in place in the oil sands at Shell Quest. It opened in 2015 and they're catching 5 million tons a year at the upgrader. And they're actually looking to put in an additional carbon capture facility there. They're doing it through transitioning to different sources of energy for running the upgraders and and the other processes up there and also adding investing in innovations things like direct air capture. You may have heard there's a project actually coming down here to Texas with Oxy Ventures, which is a direct air capture project with Carbon Engineering, which is a Canadian company, which is actually taking carbon dioxide straight out of the air and injecting it into the ground and reducing emissions and sometimes using it for enhanced oil recovery as well. Oh, that's great. And then I guess methane emissions is a big thing, huh? 
Methane is obviously a potent greenhouse gas, and we've been doing a lot on methane in Canada, again, working with the provinces. And so we have a commitment right now to reduce our methane emissions by 40 to 45 percent by 2025. So really not very far away. Yeah, that's right around the corner. It is right around the corner and 75 percent by 2030. And we're actually well on our way. And so the federal regulations focus a lot on oil and gas facilities, but it also, again, takes a very flexible approach. So whether it's fugitive emissions or venting, we've entered into what's called equivalency agreements with our three major oil and gas producing provinces out west, British Columbia, Saskatchewan, and Alberta. So they're putting into place regulations and actions to make sure we meet that 45% commitment. And If I was a betting woman, I would actually bet that we exceed that 45% by 2025. Wow, that sounds really aggressive. You know, it's interesting. The work that happened with industry really showed that what industry needed is flexibility to choose the solutions that were going to work for them and also to ramp up in terms of the sort of glide path in terms of those emissions reductions. And so industry said, we might need a couple more years to you know, put these seals on, look at these pneumatic compressors, et cetera, find the fugitive emissions and do some monitoring to make sure we're getting the best bang for our buck. But we agree that we can get there by 2025. And so it's a very collaborative process with industry. So the results and the outputs in terms of emissions reductions are, are more in the later years as we get towards 2025. But industry was very collaborative and saw a way to get there. So, again, people need to know that the oil and gas industry is not about dirty air and dirty water and dirty land and all that sort of thing. The two can actually coexist. And in fact, they're actually, you're back to this carbon pricing thing. I mean, they're figuring out ways to not only clean up the environment, but of course, what was always the big issue before was, you know, the big bad, greedy oil companies, you know, mm-hmm. and they didn't want to spend the money. Now they're, they're good old innovation, especially in oil and gas, you know, now we've figured out how to make money with it. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that's right. And cleaner oil and gas is part of the climate change pathway forward. I think that that's something that we hear a lot about. I think technologies like carbon capture, I think transition and using and hydrogen is going to be important. I think natural gas is going to be a big part of the future. But cleaner oil and gas is a big part of the conversation that's happening right now in terms of meeting the climate change goals that we're setting both domestically, bilaterally between Canada and the U.S. We work together on a lot of these things, but also internationally. Another really interesting thing that happened in the oil sands is something called the Canadian Oil Sands Innovation Alliance. And so COSIA for short. And all the majors you know, they were all tackling similar problems, whether it was landscape reclamation, whether it was tailings, whether it was air emissions, whether it was water. And they agreed as a group to share the research and development innovations that were taking place in their companies. They would share the intellectual property within the basin. And I have to say, I've heard some stories about how this took off, and it was the leadership, the presidents and the CEOs that said, you know, let's all work on this together. We're all tackling the same problems. And we need to tackle these problems because international markets are saying, we don't want to take this product unless you show that you're considering the environment and climate change, etc. And so they work together and they share the intellectual property and, and it's making progress faster to make sure that they're making results happen on the ground and in the water and in the air. I'm so glad to hear you talk about that because I've had some people on the show 
talking about safety, and of course, we're mostly focusing here on the environment right now, but I've had them say the same thing about safety. There needs to be more collaborative efforts amongst the operators, you know, and sharing their experiences and saying, here's what we're doing. Here's something maybe innovative that we're doing. And rather than keep it to ourselves, we want you to know about it so you can benefit from it. I think that that's absolutely right. And right now, you know, obviously there's a lot of public discussion about climate change. There's a lot of public pressure in terms of the oil and gas sector. And I think the more proactive effort, the more transparent communication, the better. Because I think having these conversations and showing an industry-wide and sector-wide commitment is going to help us have more constructive conversations with all parts of society. Another thing that we did in the oil sands, and it's been it's been in place for about 10 years now, is, is a very transparent monitoring system for air, wildlife, disturbances, water. And so we now have nine years of data that's available to the public and the communities from one over 1,000 sites. And that was really important for the communities that those operators were in. So people in the community can see what the emissions are, what the impacts are, and the international community can as well. It's all there for people to see. And that transparency, I think, has opened up a lot of good conversations and practical realities about what's actually happening. Okay. So backing up just a minute about technology and transitions for the energy sector. And you mentioned, I think, a couple already. You and I, when we talked off air before this interview, you gave me an acronym, CCUS. Right. Carbon Capture Utilization and Storage. Okay. That's what we're talking about. That's the carbon capture. Correct. Yeah. And then you mentioned hydrogen. I think that's a interesting subject. Folks want to know, you know, where are we on that? (laughs) Well, you know, I think a lot of countries have hydrogen strategies right now that have the resources to be able to to develop hydrogen. We have a strategy at the federal level and also in the provincial level. We actually have a hydrogen hub already at a demonstration level in Edmonton. And so you can make hydrogen different ways. But, you know, there's a rainbow, as they call it, blue, green and gray hydrogen, depending on the source and the emissions profile associated with it. But we see hydrogen as a really important area of the future. But it's just it's just growing right now. And I think there's still a lot of research and demonstration that will help us advance those opportunities. But we're definitely committed to doing that work. Okay, so let's talk about you mentioned it in passing earlier in the conversation, but let's talk about the elephant in the room as it regards Canada-U.S. relations pipelines. For sure, for sure. And I think I mentioned that we have a lot of trade between Canada and the U.S. in terms of energy trade. And a lot of that obviously comes through pipelines. It comes through transmission lines. But, you know, we have over 70 pipelines already, which is, I think, important to note. We have 70 pipelines that some of which go both ways. We have product flowing north to Canada from the U.S. and we have product flowing south to the U.S. from Canada. A lot of it comes down into the Gulf Coast refineries. And so we have right now about 37 million barrels per day that come down from Canada on those pipelines very safely, very efficiently with lower emissions than you'd have when you put it on rail and a higher safety. That was what I wanted. I really want to stress that. And we have got to get that message across. Absolutely. And better safety for communities. And I think it's interesting to note, you know, in 2008, the U.S. was importing 10 million barrels per day 
obviously, with all of the progress that's been made in the oil and gas sector in the U.S., they're importing less. But at that time, only 2 million were coming from Canada. And now, you know, we've got over 3 million barrels per day coming from Canada. And we are 60% of U.S. imports and more than all of OPEC combined. And so I think that's really important. Those pipelines are actually enhancing not just safety, but energy security and competitiveness here in North America. We've had some good progress on pipelines in the recent months, we had the expansion of Line 3 and the cap line reversal, and that's helping get crude to the Gulf Coast because those refineries are configured to deal with that heavy crude that comes from Canada. When Venezuela exports stopped, those facilities were really looking for additional sources to develop petroleum products. Those create jobs, of course, here in the U.S., and a lot of those products are exported back to Canada or other markets. But we are challenged by some other pipeline projects. Obviously, we were disappointed by the decision with KXL, Keystone XL. That XL pipeline is part of a much bigger pipeline network that's been operating for many years. And right now, we are also working diligently to ensure that the Line 5 pipeline that's up in northern Canada continues to operate. We unfortunately had a decision by the governor of Michigan to try and shut down that pipeline. And that pipeline is important for economics in both the U.S. and in Canada. And so we're working, we're in negotiations. We have a pipeline treaty between Canada and the U.S. And so we're in negotiations and in the courts trying to make sure that we can keep that pipeline running. And the operator of that pipeline, Enbridge, has also had signaled and had committed to developing an infrastructure corridor that would contain that pipeline under the lakes and the area, but also transmit other infrastructure like broadband, which would be helpful for communities on both sides of the border. But, you know, Line 5 gives essential, reliable, secure energy for Michigan, Ohio, Pennsylvania, and the Great Lakes region. And it's been working for over six decades. It provides feedstock to four refineries in Michigan, Ohio, and Pennsylvania. And so we're really concerned about what the consequences of a Line 5 shutdown would be. And we estimate that it could threaten more than 33,000 jobs and jeopardize over $20 billion in economic activity. And so we're working really hard to find a solution on this pipeline. So your role as general counsel, is that kind of what you do? So I do a lot of things, depends on the day. On a good day like today, I get to talk to someone like you. But down here in the five states that I engage with, There's less resistance to building pipelines, but I still have lots of conversations. I attend a lot of energy conferences to talk about Canada's energy sector, the strides we're making and the commitment we have to climate change. We work with state governments, state legislatures, governors on things like trade irritants. We, of course, negotiated a NAFTA 2.0, the United States-Mexico-Canada Agreement, and so worked a lot with the elected officials across these five states to get that across the finish line. We had some trade disputes under the Trump administration. We have some trade irritants right now with the Biden administration. So I do a lot of conversation on that. But I also support companies connecting. So I work with Canadian companies that are wanting to be more active here in the markets of these five states and vice versa. And then, of course, we help Canadians who have trouble when they're here, whether it's losing a passport or if there's a natural disaster. So the work is broad ranging, but it really focuses on the Canada-US relationship, trade and policy. 
Okay, folks. So if you're listening, you've got an advocate here and we'll definitely put Rachel's LinkedIn contact information in the show notes so you can reach out to her if she can help you with any of these things. One final thing, and this actually a company that I'm involved in, this is something that interests me. I hear you guys are doing a lot of work on abandoned wells. Absolutely. You know, during, I guess, the early days of COVID at the time, I don't think we knew that it was going to last two years. But just like the United States, we have a challenge with orphaned and abandoned wells. And we saw that service companies were having, you know, challenges in terms of getting people back to work and working. And so what the federal government did in 2020 was invest about well, over $1.72 billion into working on abandoned wells. And so we, you know, again, working with Alberta, Saskatchewan and British Columbia, put money out there to help address this problem. And so we work on fiscal years that start in April. And so in the first few months, we dealt with 8,000. And then at the beginning of this fiscal year, there had already been another 33,000 approved for remediation. And so we're hopeful that that work continues to progress because I think it really generates economic wealth, but also addresses an environmental liability that we have. Well, that sounds like a real commitment toward it as well. Speaking of COVID, so is Canada open? The border is open. You know, I think it's a testament to the strength of our relationship that we were able to work together to manage that border. But the snowbirds have been able to come down and escape the winter and come down to places, whether it be here in Texas, to their beach, the beaches they love here or in other states. And Americans are able to travel up to Canada again whether it's for skiing now or during the summer to visit. And we hope to continue that movement. The good news was is that our trade flowed very, very effectively throughout the pandemic. And that was important. Well, folks, arguably the most beautiful place on the planet is Lake Louise. So if you get a chance to get up there and visit, it's definitely worth the trip. It is. It's beautiful up there. Hey, Rachel, I really appreciate you coming on the show. It was a pleasure. I actually met you at the World Petroleum Congress. I really appreciate you coming on and talking about, I think we're going to entitle this podcast, Oh Canada. (laughs) (laughs) And for those who are familiar with the Canadian National Anthem, you'll know what we're talking about there. And I want to thank you again, and I want to thank everyone else for listening. Please tune in next week for another episode of Anderson Hauser's Oil and Gas HSE podcast, a production of the Oil and Gas Global Network. Anderson Hauser is your reliable U.S. and international-based partner for measurement instrumentation services and solutions. Anderson Hauser, the people for process automation. As I mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, you can discover more about Anderson Hauser by going to our website. That link's posted in the show notes along with Anderson Hauser's LinkedIn and Twitter addresses. Also, as we close out this show, for those of you in the Houston area, OGGN's famous industry mixer, our first industry mixer of 2022 will be on January 27th at the Cannon. Please leave us a review on iTunes or whatever podcast platform you use. Tell your friends about us on all your social media, and we'll see you next time. Tune in next week for another engaging episode of the Oil & Gas HSE podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.